Uh, if you don't mind, I'll open again with prayer uh, because I can't do anything without God and I'd rather he be with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, I am your servant. Uh, I surrender all that I have to you. I pray that you would be with me, that you would guide my words and my thoughts uh, and allow me to speak your word uh, in a way that can be heard and understand, understood by your people today. Lord, we submit ourselves as a church to your authority. Help us to be led by your word and by your spirit, not to choose our own ways, Lord, but to align our lives with the way that you've revealed to us. For you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way to the Father except through you. So allow us to walk in the straight and narrow in our lives and to turn our eyes and our attention and our hearts toward our holy God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'll be picking up a little bit from last time. Uh, we spoke about Revelation 12, about the battle between good and evil, uh, specifically in verses 9 through 10. Uh, it says this, John, the person with the vision, writes, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives even unto death. Chapter 12 of Revelation describes a battle between the spiritual forces of God and of the enemy who seeks to steal, to kill, and to destroy God's creation. We looked at this in some detail previously and learned that Satan has gained a foothold in this world through deceiving the first man, Adam, into rebellion against God. It took the death of Jesus, who was himself without sin, to pay the price for our sin and to provide a path to restored relationship with God. His death and resurrection assured Satan's defeat, but Satan still rages with every moment he has left on this world until Christ returns in judgment. We as believers in this age are threatened by the enemy who wishes nothing more than to destroy the faith we have in Christ through every means at his disposal. Over this and the next few lessons, we will look at some of the ways that Satan uses his battle tactics and how we as the church overcame him by the blood of the Lamb by the word of our testimony, and a proper perspective of our physical and spiritual lives. In Revelation 12.9, we read that Satan is the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before our God. God is a righteous judge. He does not permit evil to go unpunished. And if that were all there was to the story, we would be in trouble. For all of us have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. And the righteous sentence for that rebellion against God is death. We read this in Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But thank the Lord that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, his Son. Because along with being righteous and just, God is also love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So whoever believes in him would not perish have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. John 3, 16-17. Satan, on the other hand, doesn't care about what is righteous or just. He just wants to see God's people suffer. Since he has no authority to destroy us in his own power, 
His one course of action is to accuse us before God, to point out our sin like a child tattling on his brother or sister. As one of seven siblings myself, I remember growing up that we felt very strongly that things should be fair. I use quotes here because we were not concerned with what was truly just, but rather that someone else got away with something we would have been punished for. A similar attitude is reflected in Jonah chapter 4. After warning the city of Nineveh of their impending judgment, Jonah takes a seat nearby to watch, waiting for God's wrath to fall on them, and is angered when the Lord spares them, when Nineveh repents. In chapter 3 of Zechariah, the prophet records a vision of God's mercy. Beginning in verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove now the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Zechariah 3, 1 through 9. We know that God provides this path to redemption through Christ for all who repent of their sin and accept his gift of salvation. For Christ came to die for our sins, and the power of death could not prevail against him, for he rose again after three days. Through him, we have victory over death, hell, and the grave, so that the penalty for our sin has been wiped clean. God has separated our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, and remembers it no more. To keep us from repentance, Satan attacks believers by whispering to our hearts that we don't deserve this salvation or that our sin is too big a price for Christ to pay. To the first, I must acknowledge that it is correct. We don't deserve salvation. For you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. What Satan conveniently leaves out, however, is that salvation is not something to be served or to be earned, or lived up to, or in any way a result of our actions. If it were, none of us would be found worthy of redemption. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him in Christ. 
by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. The very fact that we don't deserve salvation is what makes God's love even more astounding. The truth is, my sin is so bad that there is nothing I could ever do to be free of it. Even if I tried, I was by nature a child of wrath, a son of disobedience, and no amount of my effort could live up to the standard of holiness that is our God. And believe me, I tried. I spent years of my life thinking that if I could just live perfectly, that God would love me. That if I would just be without sin in my heart and in my actions and in my choices, if I could obey my parents and go to church every week and you know, honor my father and my mother and all that I do and honor the Lord through all my actions, that I would be set and I wouldn't have to fear hell. But the older I get and the more my eyes were open, the more I realized through the word, the standard of holiness that God has, it wasn't enough that I would just not punch my brothers. If I thought about, you know, if I harbored an angry thought in my head or anger in my heart towards them, that's a sin in God's eyes. It didn't matter if I didn't steal what was my brothers or sisters. If I coveted it, if I desired it, if it dwelt in my heart and took the place of God as something I valued more than him, that was a sin and it separates me from God. And the more I realized through the law, the standard of righteousness that I could not live up to, that I did not live up to, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I wanted it, I was overcome by despair. Because Satan, he just reached right in there and he told me that I was unworthy of God. And I believed him. But God says that doesn't matter. Our worth does not determine his love for us. His love for us determines our worth. If we call ourselves sons and daughters of the Most High, that is not a right that we have earned, but a gift that God has given. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 6 through 9. The lie here is that sin is too big for God, or that even after we are saved, we should live in fear that a single misstep could undo what God has done for us. In the nation of Israel, the priest would offer a sacrifice of atonement once a year for all the sins of the nation. As a teenager, I prayed the sinner's prayer more than a dozen times. I'd go to church camp or have a, a revival at church, and the preacher would come up and say, if you don't know that you're going to heaven when you die, if you aren't 100% sure that your home is with him, you'd better come up here and pray this prayer so that you can know for sure that you're with him. And as a not a very sure person, I could never have 100% confidence in my salvation. You know, I was still sinning. I could recognize that. You know, I could look back on the times that I fall short of the glory of God. 
So I knew that every time, I felt like every time I'd have to go forward to pray again. And if I had died without praying that prayer, I would be condemned to death. If prayers or sheep's blood were all that we had, then Satan might be right that our sins are too big. As we read in Hebrews 10, 9 through 14, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away our sins. But when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The picture here is that our great high priest, Jesus Christ, does not have to continually make a sacrifice for our sins. If I sin again, Christ doesn't need to die again. His one death was enough to cover all sin, not just for me, but for all mankind, for all eternity. There is no greater sacrifice for our sin than the blood of our holy God. For this reason, Paul also writes in Romans 8, that there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 1 through 4. That the law, which is the righteous standard of holiness, I could never live up to in my strength, in my flesh. Christ died to make the difference there, so that no matter how short I fall of the law, Christ is sufficient. His blood is enough to make the difference, to bring me to that place of righteousness before God, this is called the atonement, that the penalty for my sins is wiped clean, that I owe a debt to God greater than I could ever repay, but in Christ's blood it is forgiven, that I no longer bear the cost anymore. And not just for me, but for all of us, for you, your friends, your family, for all who turn to Christ and accept his gift of salvation, there is no more condemnation in us. That if I were to stumble today, which I probably will, because I still live in this flesh, it's not my flesh which determines righteousness before God, but Christ's sacrifice. That all I need to do is repent of my sin and to choose in my heart that Jesus is Lord and to believe that God raised him from the dead. While we as believers strive to live without sin so as not to make a mockery of his grace, God knows that we will continue to struggle with temptation for as long as we remain on this earth, in these mortal bodies. The church calls this progressive sanctification, for we as believers mature in our faith and are in the process of being changed by God, molded as we allow him into the image of Christ. Our ultimate sanctification, when we meet the Lord face to face and receive our new bodies, awaits us. Our assurance of salvation comes through the blood of the Lamb in the moment we repent and accept his free gift. At that moment, we receive what is known as positional sanctification, for although we did nothing to earn it, we have indeed been justified 
through Jesus' blood and stand in the position that he gives us of righteousness since he took our place on the cross. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8, 29 through 30. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge, any accusation against the Lord's elect? It is God who justifies. Who will condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is indeed at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Romans 8, 31 through 34. Satan can accuse you all he wants to before the Father. He can point out each and every one of your sins from the first angry word you spoke to the most recent covetous thought. He can whisper to your heart that you don't deserve grace or that grace is not enough to cover the cost for all the wicked things that you've done. He can say to you that because of yesterday's sin, you no longer have a place as one of God's people, that your mistakes have driven you far from the place where God can reach. But our sin, the one thing that could separate us from God, is covered in full by the blood of the Lamb. We stand blameless in the presence of God, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood of the Lamb. For there is no other name by which we might be saved but that of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can't deserve it, that we can't earn it, but your blood was a free gift to cover a multitude of our sins. Lord, the enemy seeks to accuse us before God, to convince us in our hearts that we are condemned to death, that we are unworthy of your love for us. Lord, he attempts to deceive us into thinking that we could not stand in the presence of our God by using the very thing that defines you, your holiness. But Lord, we thank you that that is not all, but you are also a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who cares enough for me that while I was still a sinner, you sent your son to die. Lord, that I can't earn your love or your grace, but the very thing that makes grace grace is that we don't earn it. Lord, but it is given freely to all who accept it. Lord, I pray that 
you would remind us of your truth through your word, that your Holy Spirit would defend us, and that our confidence in you would assure us so that any time the enemy lies to us to tell us that we don't belong, we can point to the moment of our salvation, to your death and resurrection, to the price that you paid for our sins when you said it is finished, it is done, one sacrifice for all time, when you sat down at the right hand of the Father. So Lord, we don't have to live in fear because perfect love casts out all fear. We do not have to live in condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord, convict us of our sin, turn us to repentance, and draw us near to your heart that we may live as sons and daughters of God. Lord, help our eyes to be fixed on the promise of heaven. Lord, we know that every step that we fail, God, you are there to pick us up. That it should we indeed walk hand in hand with you, there is nothing that can separate us from you. That our doubts, our fears, the lies of the enemy, the accusations that he makes before us, even our very own sin will not separate us from you, for we are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for all of us gathered today that we would depart this place but not your presence. Lord, that we continue to seek after you, to be molded by you, by your word, and by your spirit into the image of our Christ Jesus. That we would represent you well to those around us, that we would draw others to repentance through our love and through our faithfulness. Lord, we know that your spirit draws us to repentance through your kindness. So Lord, let your love for us be a light to all nations. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name.